Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. We will begin reading from Shijiva Goswami's Krishna Sandarbha. This evening we'll start with the first Anucheta. Uh, Shijiva Goswami begins uh, his Krishna Sandarbha with one of the verses of his Mangala Charna. Uh, all the verses were presented in the Tattva Sandarbha. And then uh, as he goes through, he he generally repeats this first verse at the beginning of the other Sandarbhas. For the pleasure of the two sages, Sri Rupa Goswami and Sri Sanatan Goswami, I am rearranging this book compiled by Sri Gopal Bhatta Goswami, who was born in South India. Some parts of his book were, were in order, some out of order, while others were incomplete or missing. After thorough deliberation, Sri Jiva now writes Krishna Sandarbha in the appropriate order. So the first five Anuchetas of the Krishna Sandarbha deal with um, the fact that Krishna is the source of the Purusha avatars. So it's like a real... Uh, in the context of presenting Krishna, Swayam Bhagavan, Jiva is going to start off by uh, giving us the highlights of, of the Paramatma manifestation and also the Brahman manifestation of uh, Bhagavan. And then he's going to jump into the main presentation of Krishna being Swayam Bhagavan, the uh, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam, if we're talking of any any uh, manifestations of Bhagavan, then ultimately we have to come to this conclusion that Krishna is the topmost manifestation uh, of the Supreme Absolute Truth. So his first Anucheta begins as follows. This Krishna Sandarbha is now being undertaken to determine the precise identity of Sri Bhagavan, whose supremacy over all other forms of the Godhead has been established in the three previous Sandarbhas. So in the first three Sandarbhas, the fact that Bhagavan is the supreme manifestation, complete manifestations of the supreme absolute truth, uh, with all his potencies, and primarily with his six attributes, six potencies, uh, wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, renunciation, in totality, that's Bhagavan. So now Jiva is saying, I want to delineate Bhagavan precisely, exactly what is this topmost manifestation of the Godhead. So before he gets into that, he's going to give us a little bit of perspective on those aspects of the Supreme Absolute Truth, which he's already covered in the prior Sandarbhas. 
in those first three volumes, meaning the th first three Sandarbhas, Tattva Sandarbha, Bhagavat Sandarbha, and Paramatma Sandarbha, it was stated in accordance with the Vedanta verse, Vedanti verse, Vedanti tat tatva vidas, tatva myas dhyanamadvayam, prameti paramatmeti bhagavaniti sabjite, that the one and only reality, tatva, is designated by three names, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. These three manifestations are distinguished in the third chapter of the first canto. That's where that verse is. Uh, I'm sorry. That verse is, uh, is not from the, uh, what's he say? Third chapter of the first canto. These three manifestations are distinguished. In the following verse, however, it is specifically Brahman that is being pointed out. So what he's saying here is this Vedanta verse, Vedanti verse, 1 to 11, Vedanti tat tat vavidas, uh, the manifestations that that verse is referring to are explained in the third chapter of the first canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And then he says, but specifically this verse is referring to Brahman. And now he's going to give one verse from that third chapter of the first canto. When these gross and subtle bodies, which are superimposed on the self through ignorance, are seen through by the appearance of authentic self-knowledge, then the imminent, I'm sorry, then the immediate intuition of Brahman occurs. It's an interesting translation. When these gross and subtle bodies, which are superimposed upon ourself through ignorance, ignorance gives us this, this idea of the gross and subtle body being ourself, are seen through when you could see beyond that imposition of ignorance upon your being, then what you have knowledge of at that point is Brahman. So once you can see through your gross and subtle coverings, if you can, once you can see them for what they are, that's Brahman. But now, now Jiva goes on to explain. So that's Brahman realization. But it has a certain nature. He says, yet because Brahman is distinct and is disclosed as unitary, there is no doubt whatsoever as to its nature. Consequently, statements to ascertain Brahman from the Bhagavatam are not being cited. Because, however, the manifestation of Sri Bhagavan and Paramama are numerous, verses will be cited to determine their identities. So Brahman, if we can perceive the nature of Brahman, 
as being that all-encompassing spiritual manifestation of the absolute truth, which is unitary. It encompasses everything. It's the great Brahman. So, and if we can see through ourself, we could actually perceive, yes, we're Brahman. We are spirit. We're of one consciousness, one supreme consciousness. So, that's Brahman realization, free from the influence of the modes of material nature. But there's nothing to it as far as ontologically, if you're to look at Brahman, what's, what's its nature? Its nature is you can't really apply any nomenclature to it because it's not of any, it, you have, you have no way of, of signifying anything in Brahman. In other words, it has no qualities. It's, it just is. It's that all pervading spiritual being. But ontologically, to look at it from the, the point of view of, of Shastra, you can't, you can't attribute any qualities, any pastimes, any form. It's that formless, all-pervasive consciousness that pervades everything. That's what Brahman means. So what more is there to be said about it? So Jeeva is saying, there's no need of us quoting verses from the Bhagavat Purana to explain Brahman because there's nothing really to say. The people that aspire to merge into Brahman, that whole um, ideal rests upon the the qualifying factor of Brahman, which is, cannot be distinguished. It's not this, it's not that. It's not anything that we can put our finger on with our current, the current experiential background that we have. Everything here is either hot or cold. Everything here is either dead or alive. Everything here is either black or white. Everything here is full of dualities. Brahman has no dualities. Of course, the Vedanta verse itself speaks of that absolute non-dual substance. But that's only one aspect of that non-dual substance, which we call the absolute truth. It's one aspect, one way of looking at it only. And that way is the way of negation. Nirvashesha. No qualities. Nothing that we can say. All we can say is if we turn on, turn off everything that we associate with the qualities that we have experience of, that's Brahman. That's as much as we can say about it. 
So Jiva's saying, there's no need to pursue it any further. There's really nothing there to latch on to. And it's certainly not the main subject of the Bhagavat Purana. So there, I don't, I'm not going to quote from the Bhagavat Purana, which is about a much fuller and richer presentation of the Supreme Absolute Truth. Why, would, why should we waste our time trying to delve into this understanding any deeper? Because there's really nothing there that's going to fulfill the, the transcendentalist. And if the transcendentalist is only interested in turning off everything that is their experiential existence, I mean, if we are a part of, of the supreme spiritual existence, we have ourselves qualities of sat, shit, and ananda. We exist. We have cognizance of our existence. And... We have the ability to enjoy the fact that we exist and that we're aware that we exist. So do we want to enter into a spirituality where we take away the awareness? We take away the enjoyment and we're left with being? Oh, I am. That's it. I am. It ends. Well, you take the I away and then you have M. M. That's it. You just, there's, there can't be an I because the I has to go also. So there just has to be the existence. Jiva's saying, okay, there's no need to discuss that anymore. Consequently, statements to ascertain Brahman, ascertain Brahman from the Bhagavatam are not being cited. There's just not, nowhere to go. Because, however, the manifestations of Sri Bhagavan and Paramatma are numerous, verses will be cited to determine their identities. All right, so let's look into this deeper. Let's look into this supreme absolute truth. We accept the Bhagavatam. That's the basis of our knowledge. The Bhagavatam says we can look at the absolute truth through the eyes of different spiritual seekers and according to their, to their ideals. These three, these three nomenclatures are, have been utilized in the Bhagavatam to explain the three ideals. Raman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. All right. Brahman's the, set Brahman aside. There's nothing else to say about it. You can't even say, I am. You just, it just exists. Existence is there. That's it. It's a limit. You might as well throw your cogn cognition out because there's nothing to, to take in. Because once you start saying, oh, I feel, I feel anything, well, then that, once you say you feel anything, then that definitely requires something. 
something that has a quality. So, problem. Of these two, the other two, Paramatma and Bhagavan, it was earlier concluded that Ishvara, the supreme regulator of Maya and the Jiva, is not formless. The supreme self, Purusha, who is eminent within all living beings, Sarva Antaryami, has been propounded by the word Paramatma in those very Sandarbhas. Such being the case, those very Sandarbhas meaning the first three, such being the case, the Purusha is illustrated in precisely the same terms in the beginning of the third chapter of the first canto. So Jiva's kind of, he's directing us to the Bhagavatam, and he's directing us to the Bhagavatam's third chapter, first canto, wherein, wherein this is specifically addressed. It's addressed because there were six questions asked by the sages of uh, Sutta, and the fifth of those questions is, can you explain the various incarnations of God? So, the Brahman feature of the Supreme is spoken of in the 33rd verse of that third chapter. When you take away the gross and subtle body from yourself, you're left with your spirituality. Brahman. You you can perceive it. It's it's something that that you can have. And of course we understand from our from the Gaudiya perspective that in order to have that perception, which what we call what what do we call it? We call it mukti. You become a jivan mukti. You become free from the influence of the modes of material nature. You become a sukadev. You walk naked in the world because you have no attachment to the world. You become like the Kamars. You never there's nothing to make you grow old. You're happy to stay a youth forever because there's nothing that you want from aging. From so the point being made here is that perception from the Gaudiya viewpoint requires that we have what? We have a touch of bhakti. But that touch of bhakti doesn't, although it is required for the fulfillment, the complete fulfillment of what we would call being a Brahmavadi or being Brahman realized, taking it to the full nth degree, you require that touch of bhakti, but still awareness of Brahman to the state of liberation, which is what we call a jivan mukta, still have, who's still in the material world. That is something that is, it's attainable by the jiva 
of his own volition mm. up to that point. You see what I'm saying? Mm. We can we can attain that just by detaching ourselves. Mm. It's not like the other disciplines where there's you know, we need to really take some real direction. What the Bhagavatam is telling us, if you can simply turn off and see through material existence, you're going to see that there's a spiritual background to everything. And that's Brahman realization. But, but when we talk about the Paramatma feature... And the Bhagavan feature, Paramatma iti, Bhagavan iti, Subjate, when we talk about those features, those ways of looking at the absolute truth, we need some outside knowledge there. We need somebody to tell us about that. There's no way that of our own, from our perspective, from our phenomenal existence from what's available in the environment that we inhabit. There's nothing in the environment of material existence in and of itself that will lead us to a natural understanding of the Paramatma feature of the Absolute Truth, like the natural understanding that you can get of Brahman just by turning off your senses, controlling your mind, and fixing it on, on the inner core of your being, so to speak. Once you go, want to go beyond that, you need, you need outside information. And the outside information that you need is not going to be provided by the environment in and of itself. There are things in the environment that can give you that knowledge, but they are descending from the transcendental plane. Such being case, the Purusha is illustrated in precisely the same terms in the beginning of the third chapter of the first canto. So we've talked about the Brahman feature. Now Jiva's going to go on and saying, now also from this third chapter, which answers this fifth question by the sages, please explain all the avatars. So the 33rd verse deals with well, if you can turn off your senses, then you can perceive the self of self, the Brahman. Okay, now let's go back to the very beginning of that chapter. And if we look to the very beginning of the third chapter of the first canto, we can have the following. Knowledge of the Paramatma feature. So Jiva goes on. It may be questioned here that the one absolute reality was earlier stated to have the three aspects of Brahman, and so on. In this regard, what then are the distinguishing characteristics of Brahman, or for that matter, of Bhagavan or Paramatma? Do they indeed possess such attributes, and what are they? Anticipating such a question... From Sage Sonika and others, Sri Sutta responds as follows. And now Jiva quotes the very first verse from that third chapter. In the beginning, 
prior to the cosmic manifestation, the Supreme Personal Absolute Bhagavan, intending to evolve the cosmos, manifested the form of the Purusha, who was enfolded within Sambhutam, him alone, along with the tattvas, beginning with Mahat and endowed with the 16 evolutionary principles necessary for creation. So, now, what about this? We've talked about Brahman, and what about Paramatma? Well, we can go to the very first verse of the third chapter where all these, where this question is answered, and the Sutta Goswami begins here. In the beginning, there was the desire <laughs> by the Supreme Lord, and from that desire to manifest the material creation, he, 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 what's it say? He manifested from his very self another form. From his very self, he manifested a form, and that form, along with the evolutionary principles necessary for creation, that's the beginning, that's the Paramatma feature. It was enfolded within his very self. <coughs> so, of course, we'd naturally ask, okay, so we understand that from Bhagavan, the Supreme, came a Purusha manifestation and the 16 evolutionary principles. Well, what are those? What are these? 16 principles. So those are the five gross elements, the five working senses, the five knowledge acquiring senses, and the mind. So these are the 16 evolutionary tattvas they're sometimes referred to. Jiva goes on. It is specifically Sri Bhagavan Describing, described earlier as inherently self-endowed with six intrinsic opulences in full. In other words, Jiva's already told us about Bhagavan. And he's already told us he has complete wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation. And explain characteristics of Bhagavan in the second of, of the Sundarvas, the Bhagavat Sundarva, who at the onset of creation, assumed that particular form which is celebrated in the Veda as the Purusha. That is to say that he manifested the form of the Purusha who was enfolded within him during the period of cosmic dissolution. Then Jiva poses a question, for what purpose? What was his re why, why did that happen? In response, it is said, 
out of the intention to evolve the cosmos. Well, and we also know from the Paramatma Sandarbha that there's some, some real inner desire on the part of Bhagavan to manifest, to expand himself as the first Purusha. And what is that intent? That intent is to give further facility to the, the jivas who have begun to turn their consciousness towards the Supreme, but did not complete that process by the end of the last material manifestation. So we could say that's like Bhagavan's inner inner desire. Others say, others, the more general would say, God had the desire to create. First there was the word, you know, we can look at it in so many different ways. But from the Gaudiya perspective, as given by Jiva Goswami in the Paramatma Sandarbha, the reason, the inner reason that the Lord wanted to manifest the material universes to again create the material situation was it's a continual cycle of manifestation and some devotees haven't completed the course sufficiently to enter into the transcendental atmosphere by Kuntha. So therefore, he wants to give them an additional opportunity because they've begun to turn their consciousness towards him and therefore there is another creation. In other words, he does so with the intent to manifest the living beings or jivas together with their collective and individual designations, upadis, who were merged in that very purusha. So the purusha at the end of, of course, Bhagavan again absorbs Karnadakshai Vishnu. So the whole process begins from Bhagavan. First, then comes the first purusha. Then the first purusha expands into Gar, into the second, and the second enters uh, the universes, and then from him again is an expansion, and that expansion is in into the individual jivas in a in a uh, supervisory position every step you take every move you make <laughs> i will be fulfilling your desires and making sure you pay for any of desire pay the price in the material realm for those desires How, Jiva goes on, was that form, the Purusha, who was enfolded within him, depicted? In response, Sutta Goswami says, he was united with Mahat and so on, with all the those 16 ev evolutionary uh, principles. Tattvas, beginning with Mahat, were implicit within that form. 
In this connection, Jiva goes on, the following pro proverb is relevant. The mighty rivers issuing forth from the mountains meet together and reach the sea. In this and other similar sayings, the word sambhavati is employed in the sense of meeting or coming together. The evolutionary principles beginning with Mahat were dissolved in him along alone, the Purusha. In this way, the form that is propounded as the Jagrahi uh, verse 131 is specifically at that of the first Purusha, described as the creator of the Mahat in verses such as there are three forms of Vishnu, uh, Sattvata Tantra, and as the Sankarshan who reposes in the Kajal Ocean in Brahma Samhita. So in, uh, in other words, Jiva is saying it's this first Purusha is depicted differently in the different scriptures, but it's the same original manifestation of Karnadakshai Vishnu in the Brahma Sutra. It's depicted as following, follows the spiritual seeds of Sankarshan existing in the pores of skin of Mahavishnu are born as so many golden sperms. These sperms are covered with five great elements. Again, huh? that's the way it's referred to in the Brahma Samhita. Again, how was that form of the Purusha in the state of dissolution further illustrated? When everything's dissolved, how's that Purusha looked at? To this, it is said that he was endowed with the 16 evolutionary principles, meaning that he is replete with the complete potency required for the evolution of the cosmos. Consequently, the one who manifested such a form is Bhagavan. The form manifested by him, however, is that of Paramatma, because it is the support and shelter of all that is to be brought forth by him. This is the conclusion. So Jiva's kind of gave, given us a, an overview of, of understanding. He's going to evolve this whole idea based upon the third chapter of the first canto up to the point in other words the question was asked first of all we accept the Bhagavatam as, as the primary praman so the questions asked at the very beginning by the sages can you explain God to us we're interested to know basically the fifth question explain not explain all of God to us every aspect. So Sutta Goswami answers that question preliminarily in this th third chapter of the first canto. 
And then when we, he explains it and evolves the idea of God further and further as the Bhagavatam unfolds. But the third chapter is where we begin. So in the third chapter, we'll, we find in the 33rd verse, here's an understanding that you can, that you can take to the bank as far as Brahman, turn off your senses and your mind and your false sense of I, and there, you, there. That's, that's the basis of spirituality, which is referred to as Brahman. There's nothing much more to say about it because it's that unqualified. It's God stripped of any, any spiritual qualities. That's Brahman. Now, we've also speak of these other two, Paramatma and Bhagavan. Well, wait, we got a lot to be said there because now we're talking about God as he relates to the existence that you're aware of, the Paramatma feature. How does that evolve? And the God as he resides in his owner, own innermost being, Bhagavan, as the possessor of all potencies, spiritual and material. All right, well, let's begin with Paramatma. And that's where we're starting here with the, with the Krishna Sandarbha. Let's, let's again look at Paramatma in relationship to how it's expressed by Sutta Goswami in the very beginning of the Bhagavatam. And let's see that in relationship to the Bhagavan. And then Jiva Goswami, as he begins to unfold the Krishna Sandarbha, is going to go through the entire third chapter pretty comprehensively, starting here in the very first verse, looking at the Paramatma feature. And then he's going to walk through all the avatars. Now, all the avatars are avatars of the Purusha. That's the way the Bhagavatam explains them. And then Sutta Goswami presents them one after another, first beginning with the Kumaras and then Narda and then, you know, so one by one, the different incarnations are outlined in that third chapter, including Krishna and Balaram. They're listed there down in, uh, where is that verse? Uh, the 23rd verse. In the 19th and 20th incarnations, the Lord advented himself as Lord Balaram and Lord Krishna in the family of Rishni, the Yadu dynasty. And by doing so, he removed the burden of the world. So they're there in the list of different well, manifestations. Yes, it says it there. Yeah, that's just one, one, one clue for us. And then, then Sutta Goswami makes it perfectly clear. But of all these so-called incarnations, Krishna stands 
and it is 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 the source of all of them. He's Swayam Bhagavan. Krishna stews Bhagavan Swayam. So but Jiva's gonna work us up to that. And then all the specifics of Krishna will be outlined as we go forward. So Brahman is devoid of attributes. Nirguna is immediately apprehended through identity, uh, identity consciousness. This is the impl- implication of the verse 1333. Identity consciousness. If we can know who we aren't, we can recognize Brahman. All right. And this is the way the verses read, the 33rd and the 34th verse. Uh, just so to put it in uh, a full presentation here. Whatever a person experiences by self-realization, I'm sorry, not what, when. Whenever a person experiences by self-realization that both the gross and subtle bodies have nothing to do with the pure self, at that time he sees himself as well as the Lord. The 34th verse. If the illusory energy subsides and the living entity becomes fully enriched with knowledge by the grace of the Lord, then he becomes at once enlightened with self-realization and thus becomes situated in his own glory. Now these, of course, uh, that I've quoted are from the Bhaktivedanta translation. So we notice in Srila Prabhupada's presentation of the Bhagavatam, everything is, he points every verse to Krishna. So even where where the process of Astanga Yoga is brought out in the teachings of uh, Lord Kapila and therefore the process culminating in Brahman realization in Prabhupada's in Prabhupada's presentation it's it's put forth as he points everything to devotional service but the Bhagavatam is comprehensive there in pre, in presenting Lord Kapila's teachings. He teaches a, ch- a chapter, the chapter is dedicated to Sankhya Yoga and a chapter to, to uh, Astanga Yoga. So these different yogas, they have different objectives. So, uh, and even here, Prabhupada's, he's always, Prabhupada's always pointing everything in his Bhagavatam presentation to Krishna consciousness, pure unalloyed devotional service. Although if we read other commentators, they take different portions of the Bhagavatam that are dedicated to specific disciplines that have specific objectives which may not be devotional service. They'll present them in that that more specific light. Again, time, place, and circumstance, Prabhupada had a certain a certain objective in presenting this first first in English present complete and comprehensive uh, Bhagavat Purana. 
and his objective was to get everybody's consciousness turned towards Krishna. So later I'll show you in a, in a, in a class where there's an entirely different presentation of the very same verse by Vishwanath Chakravarti and by Srila Prabhupada. It's the same thing, but one's in one perspective and one's in another, and both are are are, are a proper presentation in and of themselves. A uh, nice thing brought out in the commentary here is, it should be noted once again that the phrase non-dual consciousness, Vedanti Vidas Gyanam Advayam, Gyanam Advayam, non-dual consciousness does not imply an absolute utterly an absolute utterly devoid of potencies it doesn't really mean that what it means is a non non-duality uh, of the absolute and that non-duality involves three basic principles this is really what non-dual absolute means one, there is no other reality. There's no other reality than the supreme absolute truth. Either similar or dissimilar, dissimilar in its self-existence. So that's one, one part of non-dual absolute. Non-dual consciousness. Another aspect, the non-dual absolute, is supported only by its own inherent potencies. It's not dependent on anything else. So there's no other reality. Every, it's completely independent. And the third is, these potencies can have no existence without it as their absolute foundation. Without nothing else can exist outside of that non-dual absolute. If we look at non-dual absolute in that in those respects, these three respects, then we have a an understanding of what that terminology means in the context of the Bhagavatam verse, the Vedanti verse. Um, in the commentary, it points out that there's two types of universes, the trans-phenomenal and the phenomenal, of course, the Vaikuntha and the material. Um, so that's our first Anucheta. Uh, the next discussion, Jeev will go on and uh, and elaborate even more on... Uh, on the Purusha avatar and the Guna avatars, he's just he's just laying the groundwork for our understanding of of Krishna independent of these other manifestations. So uh, he could have just taken us there and say, "Well, we've already discussed Paramatmas and Dharma." But he's he's more more than that. He's taking the approach of let's start our discussion here 
where the Bhagavatam starts the discussion and let's develop develop our thoughts the way the Bhagavatam is developing the presentation up to the point of Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. And then the whole text of the Krishna's and Dharma will, will begin to elaborate on, well, what is Krishna? What distinguishes this idea, this manifestation of Bhagavan as Swayam? the original, the topmost. And then the Krishna Sandarbha is going to really unfold into all the aspects of the nature of the Supreme. When we look at him through the lens of the Bhagavatam and see him in light of all of his potencies and his original form, Krishna. Then what's he? Where's he live? What's he look like? What's all, what's he do? How do you distinguish? You know, how do we how do we know? What's what's the characteristics of Krishna? If God has so many multi multi forms, uncountable forms, and 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 potencies, how do we distinguish the hierarchy? between one and another. Well, then the first question is, is there a hierarchy or is God just one? Yeah, he's one and he's many. And there we now we're coming to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. What's the key concept there? Achinta Beta Beta Tattva. So now we're, now we're really entering into a, a deeper ontological understanding of the supreme absolute truth then and that's that's the the core of well there's god's more than one and he is still one but now if we can start seeing the more of krishna the hierarchy of krishna then then with that ideal in mind, then we can enter into specifics of that personality of Godhead and the topmost way to relate to that personality by following those that have a relationship with it. So a chinta beta beta tattva is a core understanding that opens the door to Raganuga Bhakti. And there we have the distinguishing characteristic of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Uh, really played out in the modern age by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Golokar, Prabhadan, Harinam, Sankirtan. What a what a We'll go into the darkest age of mankind and, and turn on the lights, all the lights, completely. It's, it's an amazing, an amazing thing when you think. Any questions? I have a question. You were saying how the, um, how the, well, the Maya bodies view 
they you know, want to commit spiritual suicide in a sense that they they don't they want to just enter into the Brahman and disappear in that sense. And we say that like they they are they're giving up everything and becoming nothing in that sense, so they're just be merging into it. But in 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 the sense that the soul never really hundred percent does that, am I saying that and the soul always uh, is blissful in that sense, would you say that they are still even though they're after that and we don't obviously agree with that path in that sense, but they themselves that want they they will in their idea they are going to that blissful state. Is that right? Blissfulness to them, their different their definition of blissfulness is to end suffering. That's the extent of the blissfulness because they have no, uh, the additional, they don't have knowledge of anything higher than, to them, spirituality is devoid of material. If you can take away material existence, you'll be in bliss. To us, it's like, a tree's already in that much bliss. I mean, that's what the Gaudias say. <laughs> you know, so what? You turn your consciousness off. You're going to call that bliss? For the devotee, it's like, no. I don't, you know, there's there's real bliss to be had. To, if you think, if you think <laughs> bliss is just, yeah, if you think bliss is just, you know, and then the, the Gaudias use example, it's like, Brahman is like the water contained in a hoof print of a calf as compared to an ocean. That's the comparison that they give as far as the enjoyment that we can have in relationship to the Supreme. If your concept of the Supreme ends with Brahman, there you have a hoof print full of enjoyment. That's the extent. For the devotee, it's like, hey, I can dive into the ocean, and the ocean is unlimitedly deep, and unlimited breath. It just does not end. So it's like having a splinter, and you take the splinter out, and then you think that's blissful. It's relief. Yeah. It's relief from the it's good. Yeah. But there's more to life than being splinterless. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much for your association.